everyone. I've already introduced myself. My name is David. I know most of you. Those of you who I don't know or haven't seen me in a while. Uh, I'm English, live in San Diego, lived in America for about a decade. And the important thing is that I have a blog. Does anyone know the name of my blog? Not yet. <laughs> there we go, yeah, restlesspilgrim.net. So there I talk about sacred scripture, apologetics, evangelization, and also church history. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, church history. Uh, and also since I think I last spoke to you, or it's been a while, uh, I now also have a, a podcast called Pints with Jack, which you can also go to at pintswithjack.com. We've got videos and it's an audio podcast where we look at the works of C.S. Lewis guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I also go to Holy Angels Byzantine Catholic Church. So if you head up the 805 as you're going to LA, you'll usually you'll pass it on the uh, on the right. It's on top of a hill. People think it's a Hindu temple, a mosque, pretty much anything except a Catholic church. But uh, it's an Eastern Rite Catholic church. And so if you've never encountered one before, we're still Catholic. We still share the same Eucharist, but. The way we celebrate the liturgy on a Sunday looks a little different. And we use lots of icons and we sing everything and it's beautiful. So if you've never been, please feel free to come and visit us probably sometime after Easter when we're all happy again. Because at the moment <laughs> we're in Lent and the fasting's pretty severe, so everybody's miserable. Uh, but uh, let's, let's begin with a prayer that actually we pray in, the, in, our, in my liturgy every Sunday. It's Invocation of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. Saint Ignatius of Antioch, pray for us. Saint Justin Martyr, pray for us. Saint Hippolytus, pray for us. Saint James, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said, one of my great loves is church history. But it's one of those subjects where when you speak to people about it, you hear some very strange things. So I've had people tell me that we don't know really anything about what happened in the early church, anything about what happened in the early church, except what we find recorded in the New Testament. And uh, some people go a little further and they say, you know, we have no idea what happened in those early centuries. And People like to imagine these strange, exotic, esoteric rituals that the Christians would perform that have nothing to do with modern-day Christianity. Uh, but the thing is, that's not true. We actually know quite a lot about what went on in the early church. Now, we don't actually know as much as we would like to know, and that's for three main reasons. The first is antiquity. This stuff happened a long time ago. Not all documents survive. Documents are... You know, they disintegrate. If they're not copied, then they'll just fall to pieces. But number two, the other important thing to remember is that for much of the early church, Christianity was persecuted. Christians were first persecuted by their fellow Jews, then by their pagan neighbors, and then with the full force of the Roman Empire. And as such, a lot of documents then get consigned to the flames. And the last reason why we don't know quite as much as we would like is that the early church practiced something known as the discipline of the secret. 
Basically, they didn't like to share with their pagan neighbors too much about what went on when they gathered together. You know, where Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. They saw something very similar with their meetings, that you don't discuss this stuff with people who aren't Christian. And so all of this together, the antiquity, the persecution, and the discipline of the secret, obviously makes the job of historians much harder than we would like. But even despite all that, we still know an awful lot about what went on in the early church. And we know an awful lot about what would happen when Christians were gathered together to worship. Now, we're going to be looking at a document in a little bit. It's from the early 3rd century, about 215 AD. But I just want to give you a little bit of a flavour of the sort of strange things that Christians would do when they got together. Um, tell you what, well, let's do this. I I'm going to read part of it. And if you think you know how the sentence might end, just feel free to call it out. Okay? Okay. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Okay, so this is a young adult group, which means none of you are very old, which means that none of you have been around since the third century. Fair enough? But the fact that you all knew the responses suggests that perhaps what went on in the early church is more closely connected with what we do today when we go to Mass on Sunday. Now, I don't want tonight just to be a history lesson. If you just walk away with knowing a few more facts than you did before, I'm going to basically regard this as a failure. Because what I would really like you guys to get out of tonight is to be more mindful of the liturgy, particularly when you go this coming Sunday, to be a little bit more sensitive to it, and also to be more appreciative of the foundations of our forefathers in the faith who have passed the faith down to us and who also help shape the liturgy that we celebrate every Sunday. And finally, what is the point of the liturgy? What's its, what's its ultimate goal? It's to grow in love of Christ. And so that's what I also hope that you'll get out of tonight. That out of this kind of study, that you'll grow in love of Christ, his church, and uh, of naturally of the Eucharist, the bread of heaven. Now, the way that I want us to do tonight, I'm going to divide it into two sections. So the first part, I'm just going to give a presentation. And I'm going to talk about the state of religious devotion in Judaism in the first century. And I'm then going to look at what the Christians were doing by the end of the first century. If you were a Christian back then, what would you have typically have done when you went to church? And then in the second half, I think that's going to be far more fun because I much prefer talks when they're more interactive. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at some of, some of these ancient documents together, and we're gonna read through them and talk about them, and we're actually gonna end by reenacting uh, a, a mass from the fourth century. So you'll actually get to see what the Christians would, would have done pretty much word for word. And one last thing, just before we carry on, if you have questions at any point, feel free just to stop. Because I'm going to be covering a lot of material, so if anything particularly interests you, stop me, and we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that before I, I move on. All good? Okay. So before we talk about what the Christians did in the early church, we've really got to go back and look at the religious environment for Judaism by the end of the first century. 
Because Christianity didn't just pop into existence. It didn't appear in a vacuum. It was born from Judaism. And honestly, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist and Christianity is a whole talk in its own right. And I'm not going to do it justice today, but I would like to address three different uh, religious events that would take place in Judaism at the end of the first century, just to give you an idea as to what Judaism would look like and the environment from which Christianity was born. And the first one is the Kabora. I've heard people pronounce it Shavora. The Kabora fellowship meal, uh, the Toda sacrifice, and the Seder. So, first one, the Kabora fellowship meal. Actually, let's just hand these out so you can follow them, follow, follow along. So, the Kabora fellowship, it took place on the eve of the Saturday Sabbath, and it took place in the home. Now, when we think about religious things happening in the home, we might think that that meant that they were really informal. But that's not really true. Uh, we know what the, what the Jews would do when they were celebrated at a Kabora meal, and it was liturgical. It had some structure to it. Uh, so, first of all, it was a blessing of bread and wine. You're going to hear this a lot. So there's a blessing of bread and wine, and there was a set of prescribed prayers. And here's one of them. Tell me what you think this reminds you of. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. What does that sound like? I don't do rhetorical questions. So does that sound familiar at all? Way you're nodding. What does, yeah. it, remi what does it remind you of? Uh, blessing the, uh, the wine and the bread. Mm -hmm. At Mass. Yeah. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness we have this bread to offer, mm -hmm. this wine to offer, work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. It sounds like the Eucharistic prayer. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because Christianity came out of Judaism. So that was the Kabora Fellowship Meal. So the second thing I want to talk about is the Toda Sacrifice. So if you've read the Old Testament, and since you're Catholic, you hear it, hear it every Sunday at Mass, you'll know that there are lots of different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And one of them was called the Toda Sacrifice. Does anyone know what the Toda was for? Why you would offer this sacrifice? It was a Thanksgiving sacrifice for the aversion of some calamity. So if something looked really bad, and you prayed to God, and you were delivered, you would then come and offer a Toda sacrifice. And once again, it was liturgical. It was a sharing of bread and wine with friends and family. And once again, there were prescribed prayers. The first one was from Psalm 22. And that's the psalm that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? Jesus on the cross. And another one of the Psalms that's used is Psalm 116, which says, I will lift the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Has anyone seen somebody do that recently? Has anyone been to Mass today where the priests took the chalice of salvation and called upon the name of the Lord? So all of this was part of the Toda sacrifice. And this gets really interesting when we look at the Talmud. So the Talmud was rabbinic commentary 
on Jewish scripture, Jewish law, Jewish history. And the rabbis said some really interesting things about this Toda sacrifice. They suggested that when the Messiah finally came, all of the Mosaic sacrifices would come to an end, except one, the Toda sacrifice. Because you don't need those other sacrifices now. You don't need to deal with the sin offering. That's been fixed. What you would offer would be this Toda sacrifice. And it becomes even more significant when we find out what Toda means. It means thanksgiving. The Greek word for that is Eucharistia. Does anyone know what word we get from Eucharistia? Eucharist. So just to recap, the, the rabbi said that when the Messiah came, the sacrifices would cease except a thanksgiving sacrifice of bread and wine for the salvation which God had won his people. Catholics, does this sound familiar? Familiar at all? And it's for the very simple reason that Christianity came from Judaism. So what was the, what was the, what was the first meal that we looked at? It's on the paper. Give me either or your best version of it. There you go. <laughs> Kabura or Shabura. Second one? <laughs> what was the second one? Yeah, the Toda sacrifice. So we've now just got one more that I'd like to look at, and that's the Seder meal. And this was central to the Passover. So we've got to recap and establish what the Passover was. Who wants to tell me? What was the Passover? I got all night. Anyone remember what happened in Egypt with Moses? Is that sounding familiar? So the children of Israel, they're all in Egypt. They're being kept under the yoke of slavery. God sends Moses in and Moses has, uh, brings on the, the, the plagues of Egypt and it all culminates in this Passover when the children of Israel would uh, kill a lamb, spread its blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death went through the land and killed any firstborn in any house that wasn't marked by the blood. So that was the Passover. And God commanded them to keep this as a memorial, that every year around that time, they would celebrate the Passover. And this was another thing, this was another event that was highly liturgical. There was a script. Has anyone been to a cedar meal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we had one when I was at school, when I was 11 and 12. And there, there is a script. Uh, there are prescribed prayers. The youngest person in the house, the youngest boy, typically, he asks a series of questions. He asks, you know, why is this night different from every other night? And they have standard responses so that the child will learn. And the father, he pronounces a blessing. Over the, over the food that's consumed, bread and wine, as well as the Passover lamb that is being sacrificed. And once again, when we go back to the Talmud, we find the rabbis saying some very interesting things. Because what they taught was that when subsequent generations, people who never grew up in Egypt, when they celebrated the Passover, the rabbis said that they mystically participated in that salvation event. 
they mystically participated in God's rescue of that person from Egypt. So in the scripture it says that when they celebrate this, remember that this is the day that the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. Again, Catholics, is this sounding familiar? The idea that when you consume this meal, when you follow this liturgy, that you are mystically participating in a salvation event all the way back in time. And again, it's for a very simple reason. Christianity was born out of Judaism. So, what was the first meal that we spoke about? Any pronunciation? Shabura. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I'll, I'll say that's a version of it. Uh, so the the shabura or the kabura meal. What was the second one? The toda sacrifice. Okay, the Thanksgiving sacrifice. And what was the final one? Yeah, the cedar meal associated with Passover. So this covers what the Jews were doing in the first century. But how did we get from Judaism to Christianity? Who is the important figure that takes us from one to the other? Jesus. Jesus. I was going to say, he's pretty much everywhere around here. And Jesus did this principally at the Last Supper. Because he took the cedar meal that we've just spoken about and he transformed it. Because he was the first person ever in a cedar meal to take the bread and say... This is my body. He was the first person who ever took the cup of wine, the cup of blessing, and said, This is my blood. And when he said this, the apostles would have had flashbacks. So when he said, took the bread and said, This is my body, they'd be thinking back to a year before when he'd given them that hard saying. We read about it in John 6, where Jesus says, My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And when he, particularly when he, when he lifted the chalice, lifted the cup, and said that this is the cup of the new covenant, they knew what that meant. Because for years, the, the prophets had been promising that God was going to make a new covenant with his people. He made a covenant with Moses on Sinai, an agreement. He brought them into his family. But there was also a promise that there was going to be a later covenant, something new that was going to be even better. And through the prophets, God said that he was going to write the law, not on tablets of stone, as with Moses, but on the heart. He said he was going to sprinkle them with water and have their sins forgiven. He said that he was going to pour out his spirit on them. So when Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant, he's saying that this new covenant is beginning now. And it's all tied up with the Last Supper and with his sacrifice, death and resurrection. And really what we're going to be doing for the rest of the time is looking at how the apostles and their successors fulfilled his commandment. Because he said, do this in memory of me. And the church has done this in memory of him for 2,000 years. And so we're just going to be looking at how they actually did that. So, we've spoken about Judaism, we've spoken about everything changes with Jesus. Now let's look at if you were a Christian at the end of the first century, what would your church life look like? But before we can really get to that, we've got to clear up a few things. Firstly, the first Christians didn't just build churches. That's because they were costly. But also, they were a persecuted minority. 
if the local synagogue or the local Roman governor finds out you're a Christian, he's going to take your stuff, maybe torture you, maybe kill you. So you're not going to build a nice big white building on the corner of the street with a spire on it, which is advertising that where all of the Christians are gathering. So what they did instead is that they met in one another's homes, and typically the home of the richest member of the congregation, because they would have the biggest house, and they could therefore accommodate the most people. But again, even though they were meeting in one another's homes, don't think that it was therefore necessarily informal. Um, they still gave their best. We actually have the records from about 303 AD from the, the Roman courts when they raided one of these house churches. And it lists all of the things that they found. And it's very clear that this church was giving their best when they were celebrating the liturgy, all these beautiful candelabra. And the, interestingly, there was also this massive pile of clothes because it turns out that that church had been having a clothing drive to take care of the poor. So when the Romans came in and seized everything, they took all of the things that they used in the liturgy, but also all of the things that they'd been preparing for the poor. So, Christians are meeting in one another's homes, but what are they actually doing when they get there? If you were a Christian at the end of the first century, there would be three services that you'd be familiar with. First one is called the Synaxis, second one, the Eucharist, and lastly, the Agape. So when the Christians were basically getting kicked out of the synagogues, when it was clear that Christianity and Judaism were starting to go their separate ways, all the Christians did is they took the liturgy that they were used to in the synagogue and they just brought it into their home. But they transformed it as well. They made it Trinitarian, Christological, Messianic. Because what the synagogue was looking forward to, the coming of the Messiah, the new covenant, God's kingdom, the Christian church was proclaiming it actually happened. And with the synaxis, it literally means meeting. You can follow through on the sheet. The first thing that happened was a greeting and response. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Catholics, come on, this is what we're good at, saying things together in unison. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Okay, here we go. So there was a greeting and response, and then there were some readings. And so what do you think the Church of Rome might have read? when they're gathering to study God's word. The Old Testament. The Old Testament, because they had the Old Testament at that time. Uh, what else might the Church of Rome have? Letter Paul's letter to the Romans, exactly. And the church in Galatia might have his letter to the Galatians. They'd say, hey, let's, let's read that letter where St. Paul tells us that we're all terrible, terrible people and we failed the gospel. Um, <laughs> But what would also happen is that as churches would receive these letters, they would copy them and send them to neighboring churches. So after a little while, the Church of Rome might have the Epistle to the Romans, the Epistle to the Ephesians, might have Colossians. This is, this is what happened in the early church. People would send around the letters that they had. And they would actually probably also read some non-canonical works. So there are books that are in the early church that didn't end up making it into the Bible. Not because they're not orthodox, they just weren't selected. They, they, they didn't have enough apostolic pedigree. They're, it wasn't thought they were close enough to an apostle. So, for example, the Shepherd of Hermas was very popular. Um, we, we're going to read a little bit later uh, Ignatius of Antioch. He wrote several letters. And there was also the Epistle of Barnabas. 
there were, there were quite a lot of other works that people would read for spiritual nourishment, but over time the church discerned what was going to be going into the Bible, and those other works weren't read anymore. But we know in the uh, in the in the later centuries there was a, a bishop of Corinth called Dionysius, and he said that still in his time they were still reading a letter written to them by Clement of Rome. So you have Peter, first pope, Peter, and he had Linus, Cletus, Clement, this guy. Because the church at Corinth, you know when you've heard the letters to the Corinthians read at Mass, they're usually in trouble, right? They're usually doing things wrong. Well, that didn't change after St. Paul died. They still kept having issues. And in Clement's time, some young upstarts had gone and usurped the clergy. They basically kicked them out, and they had taken control of the church. And the church of Corinth wrote to Rome, asking them to adjudicate, to sort out the issue. And Clement, who was a successor to Peter, he writes this beautiful letter to them, basically saying, you can't do that. It's, it's very pastoral, it's full of authority, and it's, it's, it's a really gorgeous letter. And the church of Corinth eventually heeded. And as a result, they would read Clement's letter when they gathered together uh, in the coming centuries to remind them of how they were meant to treat each other. If you've, if you've uh, listened to 1 Corinthians 13, so every single wedding you ever go to, you know, love is patient, love is kind, Clement, he basically takes that and builds on it. Absolutely beautiful. Anyway, so there'd be a greeting response, then there'd be some readings, and then there would be a, a homily by the bishop. In the early church, we're gonna see when we look at Ignatius that the bishop is absolutely central. That, that, was, that was where you gathered to celebrate all of these things. And then there'll be a dismissal of the catechumens. So for people who hadn't yet been baptized, but they were learning about Christianity, they would then be escorted away. And then the church would then gather together to pray as one unit. So only those who were baptized could remain. And then finally, there'll be a dismissal and people would go on their way. What does this look like to you? Where else do you have greeting response collection of readings, a homily, and intercessory prayer. What do we normally call this? The liturgy of the word. And that's exactly what this later became. This was the template. And this got merged into the second service that you would have encountered, which is the Eucharist. Now, this was celebrated on Sunday before dawn. So there was none of this midday mass nonsense. <laughs> None of this 7 p.m. on a Sunday night mass garbage. No. You got up while it was still dark, probably rather carefully and quietly, and you would sneak to where all the Christians were gathering. And, as usual, there'd be a greeting response. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Oh, that was bad. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. There you go. And then there would be a, a sign of peace, a kiss of peace, you might notice that this is earlier than we currently have it today. I think this makes way more sense. And then there would be an offertory. So the deacons would go and take the offering, and it would be bread and wine. And people would actually quite often bring their own bread and wine from home as part of that offering. And then the bishop would make a Eucharistic prayer. And don't forget, we're still in the first century, so not everything has been codified. And so bishops at this time would still give something of an extemporaneous prayer. It would be off the cuff. It wouldn't necessarily be prescribed. As we move through the next few centuries, that gets less and less and less. 
But at this point, the bishop would make something up. And it would typically be a thanksgiving blessing, much like the one that Jesus gave himself. Because when we go to Mass, we don't just hear a blessing, we hear the institution narrative. We hear about what Jesus said and did. We'll say on the night before he suffered, he took the bread, he took the cup, he blessed, broke. You hear all of that. That's not in the Eucharistic liturgy of the first century. From about the second century on, that's where you start seeing that. And so after the bishop has, has given his thanksgiving, there would then be communion, and then there would be a dismissal. So if the synaxis is the basis of the liturgy of the word, what's this the basis for? I'm not asking trick questions. It's okay. <laughs> and so over time, these two services came together to form what we would now recognize as the Mass. But there was a third kind of uh, service that Christians would participate in, and that's the agape, which is also known as the love feast. And this is a fellowship meal. It's very much like the uh, Kibura, the Shabura that we spoke about. Um, it was initially celebrated in conjunction with the Eucharist. If you look in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul makes it clear that the agape and the Eucharist are being celebrated at, a, at around the same time. But by the end of the first century, uh, they, are, they have been separated. And you would typically celebrate the Eucharist before dawn, Sunday morning, and then you'd go to work because this is pagan, the pagan empire. Sunday is just like a regular day. You're still going to work. But after you finished work, you would go to either the bishops or maybe one of the priests' houses to celebrate the agape. And the structure varied a little bit, depending upon which part of the empire you were in, whether you're in the east or in the west. But there would be an introductory prayer, and then there was a blessing of the food, and then there'd be a communal meal, kind of like a Monday potluck. And then there would be washing of hands, kind of like how we have in Mass. And then a lamp would be brought in and lit and blessed by the bishop. Now what's gonna happen at the Easter Vigil? Something really similar. It's just grander. We, use, we have an entire bonfire from which the lamp is lit. But then there would be psalms and hymns, and then the bishop would bless a cup, and he'd give, some, give thanks and distribute the bread. So that was the agape meal, and that eventually died out after a few centuries. And some denominations have tried to bring it back, and some denominations have retained something of it. In the Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, it's more common to see a larger meal after the liturgy has been celebrated. Whereas in the West, you just typically get donuts and coffee. Um, in the East, you tend to find a, a, a communal meal is a little bit more common, but essentially the agape meal died, died out. Now, what I hope I've achieved by going through all of that is showing the link between Judaism and Christianity. Because the early church was Jewish. Does anyone know how many years it was following Pentecost before the first Gentile was actually brought into the church? Call out some numbers. 60. Oof, not that bad, thankfully. So less than 60. Less than 20. Less than 15. Five. More than five. Eight. More than eight. More than nine? Ten. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, so it was about 10 years after Pentecost that the first Gentiles actually entered the church. Uh, bonus point question, does anyone know which apostle brought in the Gentiles? It must be St. Paul. You'd think, but it's not. It's not St. Paul. It's not John. We've only got one other major apostle to think about. Peter? It's Peter. Peter brings in the household of Cornelius, who was a, who was, uh, a soldier. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Paul is often called the apostle to the Gentiles, but it's actually Peter who started to talk. Yeah, Cornelius is the first one. <laughs> Uh, and, but over time, the church became less and less Jewish. They, they, it became clearer both to the Christians and to the pagans that were around them that Christianity and Judaism weren't quite the same thing. And this has a definitive sp split, really, in AD 70. Does anyone know what happened in AD 70? Something big and dramatic happened. The temple was destroyed. So the Roman armies marched into Jerusalem, pretty much killed everything that was there and they destroyed the temple. And it's really at that point that Judaism and Christianity are very clearly distinguished. But the important point that I hope I've communicated is that all of the Christian worship was prefigured and shaped by the Jewish worship which preceded it. And you can actually see the remnants of it in today's Mass, because we have Psalms from the Hebrew Old Testament, we have the Alleluia, the Holy, 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 which is in Hebrew is Kadosh, 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 um, and refrains like, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of this stuff is drawn from the Old Testament and culminates in, what do we say once, uh, once the consecration has happened? We give the great Amen. So the Jewish roots of our Mass are still clear to see, but it was shaped all the way back at the beginning. So now I would like to go through some of the sources together. Um, just so we can read some, some of the, the primary sources. Because very often when I speak to people about the early church and they tell me what the early church was like, I will always ask them, have you actually read the original sources? More often than not, they haven't. They're just reproducing what somebody else has told them. I've already told you a lot of stuff tonight, but I actually want you to read some of these documents firsthand, just so that you say you have. <laughs> but also, I think some of them are beautiful. And we're actually going to begin with my favorite early church father, St. Ignatius of Antioch. He was bishop of that city, but in 107 AD, he was arrested and he was taken in chains to Rome. And he was going to be scheduled to be thrown to wild beasts. That was how he was going to die. So all the way from Antioch to Rome, simply to be thrown in a circus and be consumed by animals. Now, fortunately for us, he wrote some letters along the way. He wrote one to a fellow bishop, a guy called Polycarp. And he also wrote one to Rome because he was afraid that some high-placed Christians in the Roman Senate or in, in the political environment of Rome would try and have his death sentence changed. And he, and he writes this beautiful letter. We don't have time to go through that now. But basically telling them, don't change anything. He says, uh, uh, don't, don't, don't do me an unseasonable kindness. He says, allow me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. He saw his call to martyrdom as an imitation of Jesus. And he also wrote to local churches that he was passing by on the way to Rome. So could I please have someone uh, read that first paragraph from the Epistle to the Smyrnians? The 
heretics abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they did not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father, in his goodness, raised up again. Okay, let's just stop there for a moment. First thing to note, this is long before the Middle Ages. Constantine hasn't even been born yet. This is from the very beginning of the second century. And look at what he's describing, that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. This was the belief of the early church. And he's referring to the heretics who don't come to their Eucharist. Uh, he's actually referring to a group known as the Docetists. If you were to imagine that there was going to be a heresy in the early church, is it fair to suggest that you'd imagine that it would be the heresy that says Jesus isn't God? That seems reasonable, right? That actually wasn't the first one. The first one was claiming, oh no, no, he's divine, he's not human. Because what the docetists thought is that Jesus was this spiritual being who only looked human, but he had no humanity. And he actually even had no body, because they were dualists. They believed that matter is bad, is evil. They basically thought, spirit good, body bad. And if that's the case, then Jesus can't possibly have a body. And if he doesn't have a body, that means there's no incarnation. It means that there's no crucifixion and no resurrection. And therefore, what the Catholics say that they're eating on Sunday absolutely cannot be the flesh of the Saviour. And that's why they wouldn't go anywhere near these churches. They abstain from the Eucharist because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Uh, next person, next paragraph. Let's just, let's go around. I'm not going to ask for volunteers anymore. We're just going to do it in a chain. Marie, would you want mind? See that you follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ follows the Father. Follow the priests as you would follow the apostles. And reverence the deacons as you would reverence the command of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let, th let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the, assemb the assembly also be, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Apart from the bishop, it is not lawful to baptize or to celebrate in agape, but whatever you shall approve is pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. Thank you. So I want this to be a discussion. Does anything jump out at you from that section? Mm. This is the first extant, this is the first surviving record we have of a Christian referring to the church as the Catholic Church. 107 AD, again, this is long before Constantine, long before the Middle Ages, when, and that, that's the sort of thing you'll hear Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or you know, some Protestants say, it's like, oh, all this happened much later. Here we are, 107. You have a bishop talking about the Catholic Church, and he's using a term that he's expecting his readers just to know. Um, well, the early versions we have are unsealed texts that are actually all in capitals. <laughs> but the, the, the important thing here is that it's, it's an institution that is not another group. It's like this is the Catholic Church, not the Docetists. It's a, a visible, recognizable organization. Um, and you see the centrality of the bishop in all of this. 
He's saying stay close to the bishop because in Ignatius's mind, this is how we keep the church safe. If you stay close to your bishop, you won't fall into all this nasty heresy. And, but look what he says here. Let it be deemed a proper Eucharist that is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Why would the bishop have to, well, why, why might the bishop entrust the responsibility of celebrating the Eucharist to somebody else? Mm-hmm. He can't be everywhere at once. Yeah, so by this, by this point in church history, we have what we call monarchical bishoprics. It's basically that in each city, there's one bishop, a collection of priests, and a collection of deacons. And the bishop can't be everywhere at once, and the church is growing. There's a sociologist called Rodney Stark, and he estimates that in the early church, every decade, the church grew by about 40%. So imagine if every 10 years you had to grow the cathedral by another 50%. That's, that's the sort of growth we're talking about. So the bishop would delegate to one of his priests to celebrate the liturgy in another part of the city. Uh, could you read the uh, next paragraph from uh, the Epistle to the Ephesians? And so this is the same church that St. Paul wrote to. I consider you happy who are so joined to your bishop of the churches to Jesus Christ, and of Jesus Christ as to the Father, that so all things may agree in unity. Let no man deceive himself. If anyone be not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two possess such power, how much more that of the bishop and the whole church? He therefore who does not assemble with the church has thus manifested his pride and condemned himself. So if you asked Ignatius, why should I go to Mass? He says, because if you don't do it, you've manifested your pride and condemned yourself. Yeah, he wasn't very gentle. But earlier we said that in the Eucharist there is the real presence of Jesus Christ. Here it's making it clear that the Eucharist is itself a sacrifice. Look what he says. If anyone be not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. On the altar, that's where you put sacrifices. So that was Ignatius of Antioch. And I want to turn to the next figure that we're going to look at. It's a guy called Justin Martyr. He was born in the area of Samaria. He was born to pagan parents. And Justin's great redeeming quality was he wanted truth. And he searched for truth in philosophy. And he tried all of these different philosophical schools because he wanted to know truth. He wanted to know God. So... He went to the Stoics, the Pythagoreans, the Peripatetic, the Platonics. And he didn't find what he was looking for. But then one day he's walking along by the beach and meets this old man. We never find out anything about him, but he shares with him the gospel. And Justin is converted. He starts reading, he starts reading the prophets, starts reading the gospels, and he becomes a Christian. Now back in those days, if you were a philosopher, you had a particular outfit that you'd wear. Um, so if I say somebody is a chef, what would you expect them to be wearing? White clothes, puffy hat, that sort of thing. So a chef has got an outfit that you can recognise. Well, back then it was the same for a philosopher. They had a particular kind of cloak that they would wear. And what Justin did is he then went to Rome and set up a catechetical school to teach Christianity. And he would still wear his philosopher's cloak. Because he still regarded himself as a philosopher. He just found the true philosophy. Christianity. Justin wrote 
lots and lots of works. We only have three that have survived. Two apologies, two defences of Christianity that he wrote, and one that was a dialogue with a Jew by the name of Trypho. And so we're now going to read a little bit from his first apology, which he wrote to the Emperor Antonius Pius. And remember what I said about the discipline of the secret, that Christians didn't like sharing with their pagan neighbours what they were doing when they were gathering together? The problem that came out of that was that their pagan neighbours started having wild fantasies as to what they thought these Christians were doing. And so they started accusing them of everything. Uh, incest was very popular, uh, as well as uh, consume, the cannibalism of some kind, someone's eating babies and what have you. But it was probably gleaned from things that they heard the Christians say. They talked about loving their brothers and sisters. So to the depraved pagan mind, they think, oh, incest. Uh, they talk about eating the flesh of somebody called Christus. I was like, oh, okay, so they're probably eating a baby. So one of the things that Justin is doing in his apology is clearing this up. He says, all right, I'm, I'm going to you know, lift the veil a little bit and tell you what we do when we gather together. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind reading uh, that first part of the first apology. This food we call Eucharistia, the Eucharist, and no one is allowed to partake, but he who believes that our doctrine, the truth, has been washed with the washing for the remission of sins and Keep going, please. I'll keep going. Uh, we do not receive Jesus' common bread and drink, for Jesus Christ, our Savior, is made flesh by the word of God, both flesh and blood for our salvation. Likewise, we have been taught that the food blessed by the prayer is the flesh and blood of Jesus, who was made flesh. And one more. The apostles in the memoir they composed called Gospels have passed on to us what was enjoined upon them, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, said, Do this in memory of me. This is my body. In the same way, after taking the cup and giving thanks, he said, this is my blood. Thank you. So we see Justin explaining the Eucharist. Again, you see, there's a realism to it. He's not saying this is just a symbol. He's saying it's not just common bread, common drink. It's the flesh of Christ, his blood. And he says that the apostles told us to do this. And this is recorded in the Gospels. Now, one thing that Catholics are often criticised for is the fact that we don't have what we call open communion. Not anybody can just go up and receive Holy Communion. And some Protestants think that's a bit mean. And they have a point, except that this is how the Church has always done it. Look at what Justin says. The only people who are allowed to consume the Eucharist are those who believe our doctrines are true. So they are affirming the entire teaching of the Church. They've been washed for the washing of the, for the remission of sins and rebirth. What's he, what's, well, that's, that's quite a mouthful. What does that mean? Baptism. Yeah, baptism. So, so far we've got, they have to believe everything that the church teaches. They have to be baptized. And the last one is, and who are living as Christ has enjoined. And I would interpret that as roughly free from mortal sin. They're walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So the idea of restrictions upon who can receive the Eucharist is ancient. And it's not, the church doesn't do this because we're mean. <laughs> it's because, firstly, this is what's been passed down. And as St. Paul talks about in Corinthians, it's because we don't want people to eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Uh, can I have the next two paragraphs, please? Um, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the countryside gather together in one place. And the memories of the apostles or the writings of Perfect are read as long as time permits. Okay, just stop there for a moment. What does that sound like? 
It's talking about the writings of the apostles and prophets being read. So let's share the word again. And notice it says, for as long as time permits. So you know at Mass, there's sometimes a short version of the reading and a long one. In the early church, they took the long reading. Please carry on. Then when the readers had finished, the president stroked and exhorted them to the imitation of these good things. All right. What, what do we normally call that? Homily. Homily. Yep. Carry on. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine with water are brought forth. And the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. The ascent says amen, and then there is a distribution to each of the congregations. The deacons carry a portion to those who are absent. Okay, so does th is this all sounding really familiar? We all rise together and pray. Those are the prayers of intercession, prayers of the faithful. And then they bring forth bread and wine with water. As an aside, why do we have wine with water? In, our, in the chalice at Mass, Father will put a little drop of water in. Do you know why? It's not just because he's a... Because he's part of the body? Yes. So there's a couple of symbolisms going on here. One is to show the two natures of Christ, divine, wine, human, water. But the words that the priest will say when he's dropping the water in, he says, uh, by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. We're putting in the water into the wine to show that when we are in Christ, we receive his life and we are transformed. So it's, it's a little bit of mass. It's said very quietly. So if you're not if you're not keeping your eye out for it, you might miss it. Um, and you see here once again, the bishop is offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. So he's still kind of making it up. There there would be some set prayers, but he's just just praying from his heart. And then the people say Amen. That's the great Amen. And then there's a distribution of the Eucharistic elements. And it says, the deacons carry a portion to those who are absent. Remember what Ignatius said. He said the people who don't come to Mass, their pride has condemned them. Why might people be absent? Why, why are people sometimes absent today? For good reasons. Sick or working or whatever. Or old. And also, don't forget, this is in an era of persecution. They could be in prison. And so the deacons would take them the Eucharist in prison. Uh, wait, if you could... Uh, Finish this off. Those who are able giving give willingly whatever sum they think appropriate. The money collected is deposited with the president. He gives it then to comfort orphans, widows, and those who are wanting uh, through sickness or any other cause. And those who are imprisoned and strangers traveling among us. In our word, he take care of all who are in need. So that's the collection, that's the poor box. Charity was immensely important in the early church. It was one of the defining characteristics of Christianity. That was one of the reasons that won converts, because they put the pagans to shame, because they looked after their own poor, but also the pagan poor. And if you wouldn't mind finish us off. We hold our assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God brought forth the world from darkness and matter. 
On the same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead, for he was crucified on the day before Saturn's day, and on the day of the sun he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have submitted to you for your consideration. So here he's just explaining why we gather on Sunday. It's to do with creation, but more importantly, the resurrection. This was the day that Christ rose from the dead. If ever you come across Seventh-day Adventists, they think we're all wrong on this, that we should be, uh, that we should be going to church on Saturdays. Uh, I want to quickly mention Hippolytus before we get to our final liturgy. Um, Hippolytus, he was a priest in Rome. He was a brilliant guy, but he was also the first anti-pope. Does anyone know what an anti-pope is? If it was on a TV show, he would like be like a regular pope. He'd have a little moustache, so you know he's evil. Um, an anti-pope is somebody who claims to be pope, but in fact isn't. And that's what happened with Hippolytus, because he was super conservative, didn't like some of the stuff that was happening in the church. And when the pope died, he thought that he was going to be made pope, because he was super smart, he'd written all the stuff, he's very well respected. But someone else was chosen, and he didn't like this guy, a guy called Callistus. And so Hippolytus and a few of his friends decided, nope, Hippolytus is bishop. So they, there was a schism, and Hippolytus set himself up as pope, and he actually lasted the next three regular popes, who were Callistus, Urban, and Pontianus. One of the things that Hippolytus wrote was a document called the Apostolic Tradition. It's in about 215 AD. And he's writing this in response to what's what he's seeing happening in the church. Basically, he's unhappy. He's not liking it. People are doing new things and changing things. So he wants to write this document to say, this is how we've always done it. Uh, and it's kind of funny because shortly after this, the liturgy is going to be translated into Latin. And Hippolytus wouldn't have liked that. He wouldn't have liked the modernists celebrating Mass in Latin. For him, it had to be Greek. You know, the language of St. Paul, the, the language of the scriptures. So he was super traditionalist. And so he's been anti-pope for quite some time. But then the, the emperor then initiates this persecution of Christians. This emperor's name is wonderful. Emperor Maximinus Thrax. Doesn't that sound like a bad guy from a sci-fi movie? <laughs> and what he did is he, he exiled both Hippolytus and the valid pope to Sardinia. And it was basically a death sentence. They weren't going to last long. But in that time, the pope and the anti-pope, they reconciled. They both resigned their commission. They both resigned as Pope so that somebody else could be elected back in Rome. And that's why we call him Saint Hippolytus of Rome, because he died in friendship with the church, despite the fact that he was anti-Pope for many years. Which just shows that, you know, even if someone's an anti-Pope, they can still get into heaven. Uh, and it was from Hippolytus's document that I quoted at the beginning, when you guys magically knew the answers. The Lord be with you. And with Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right and just. So this is 215 AD. This is really early. And we say these words every Sunday. Uh, you remember when the Latin, when the mass translation got updated a few years ago? I got so excited because they were making this fix. And you know, I knew this talk was going to be way better. <laughs> but he then outlines the Eucharistic prayer. I'm just going to read uh, a couple of bits of it. He says, We give you thanks, O God, for your beloved child, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent to us in these last days as saviour, redeemer, and messenger of your counsel. He is your word, inseparable from you, through whom you created all things, and in whom you are well pleased. 
From heaven you sent him into the womb of the virgin, and once conceived within her, he was made flesh, and was shown to be your son, born of the Holy Spirit and the virgin, fulfilling your will and winning for you a holy people as he stretched out his hands as he suffered, that by his death he might free those who believed in you. When he was betrayed to his willing death, so that he might abolish death, break the bonds of the devil, trample hell underfoot, give light to the righteous, set a term of sentence and manifest his resurrection, he took bread, giving thanks, and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he goes on. And it's, this is actually, you hear this on occasion at Mass. This is Eucharistic prayer number two. This is basically what the priest is saying. Words that were composed by a church father, well, at least recorded by a church father in 215 AD, that is calling back to an even older tradition. Now we're going to do the fun one. I want to do a little bit of the liturgy of St. James. This is more of the, of the Mass, more of the liturgy, from about the 4th, 5th century. There's an earlier version of it, but this one's a little bit more complete. And we read about this in the writings of other early Christians. There was a, uh, uh, a sister called uh, Eugeria, and she goes on a, a visit to Jerusalem, and she describes the liturgy that they're celebrating there, and it's this very liturgy. And we have people like um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. He would have these catechetical lectures that we still have where he is instructing Christians who are going to be baptized at Easter about the Christian life and then afterwards about the mysteries, about the sacraments so that they can receive them worthily and they can understand what's going on. And we're not, probably not going to look at him specifically, but I have included a few extracts at the very end of your packet particularly the section that we've just read, you know, the, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Uh, but to do this, uh, I'm going to need a deacon. So which of you two would like to be a deacon? I'll do it. Excellent. Good choice. Um, I would need some singers. You don't actually have to sing, but you have to read a singer's part. Okay, so we've got... We've got let's just take, let's take both of you two as, as, as our choir. Uh, I'm also going to need uh, a catechumen. Turn May, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. So let's uh, let's do the liturgy of Saint James. So again, fourth, fifth century, and I also got to say, if you have come to my church, this should seem really familiar because ours looks much more like this, divided into very similar sections with very similar kind of wording. Peace be with you. The Lord bless us all and sanctify us for the celebration of the divine and pure mysteries. Amen. In peace, let us pray to the Lord for the peace from on high and for God's love to man and for the salvation of our souls. Let us pray to the Lord for peace in the, wo in the whole world, for the unity of all the holy churches of God. Let us pray to the Lord for the remission of our sins and forgiveness of our transgressions and for our deliverance from all tribulation, wrath, and distress. Let us pray to the Lord. Sing us. Just, you can just say it together. You don't have to sing. <laughs> Does that bit sound familiar? Where, 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 where do you recognize that from? Divine yeah. Mercy Chapel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an ancient prayer of the church. And uh, at my church, we, we still sing this. It's, it's really funny whenever I do this. Because when you're reading them, I hear the tunes that we sing as, as we're doing this. It's like, in peace let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. <laughs>
Okay. O compassionate and merciful, patient and gracious, and true God, hear us. Deliver us from every temptation of the devil and of man, for we are unable to overcome what is opposed to us. But you are able, Lord, to save us. Because you are holy, we send up the praise and the thrice holy hymn to you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever and for all eternity. Amen. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, if have any of you visited the Tridentine Mass? Latin Mass at St. Anne's. You now the priest will often he'll be praying and then he'll come back in and he'll say, Pax Vobiscum et cum spiritu tua. It's the same thing. Peace be with you and with your spirit. Uh, and then at this point in the liturgy there'll be a reading from the Old and the New Testaments. And at the end of that, the priest would then pray, O God, you have taught us your divine and saving oracles. Enlighten the souls of us sinners for the comprehension of the things that have been spoken here. May we be not only hearers of spiritual things, but also doers of good deeds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, with whom you are blessed, together with your all-holy good and life-giving spirit, now and always and forever. Amen. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. Let none of the catechumens remain, none of the baptized, None of those who are unable to join us in prayer. Look at one another, the doors, the doors. Be attentive and let us again pray to the Lord. Okay, so you remember when I said earlier that when we were, when we were talking about those liturgies in the first century, first century, I said that after, after the homily, the, the deacons would then escort the catechumens and then they would leave. So if I could have my deacon escort the catechumen out of, <laughs> out of our liturgy. Yes, Okay. See ya. Okay, and then if you have the deacon come the in the and then shut the door. The doors, the doors. Excellent. Good. So now we've uh, now we've done that. We can now carry on. I'm not that cruel. <laughs> All right, you can come back in. I'm going to make an allowance just this once. We actually still have that little bit in our liturgy. It's not always said, but the, technically the deacon should still say the doors, the doors. When the first time I came across this, like, what are they talking about? And then I read this, I was like, oh, I think it'd be amazing, kick them all out. Okay, so the unbaptized have been dismissed. And then the priest prays, Sovereign Almighty, King of Glory, show yourself to us who call upon you at this holy hour and redeem us from the shame of our transgressions. Cleanse our minds and thoughts from impure desires and accept from the band of us sinners this incense, as once you accepted the offering of Abel and Noah and Aaron and Samuel and of all your saints. That little, sorry, just, just, just for that little sequence there, doesn't that sound like the Mass that you're used to when we're talking about the bread, the offering of your priest Melchizedek? Anyway, sorry, singers, I inter interrupted you. This is, this, is, this is your moment to shine right here. <laughs> Do you guys know the song Little Mortal Flesh Keep Silent? Little Mortal Flesh Keep Silent from the fourth century. Um, 
And this is reminding us of something that we often forget when we're at the liturgy, that we are participating in the heavenly liturgy, that we're surrounded by angels and saints. We can't see them, but we do the same thing that they're doing. We sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us. Let us lift up our minds and our hearts. It is proper and right. It is indeed becoming and right to praise you, to sing to you, to bless you, to worship you, to glorify you. The highest heavens praise you, the sun, moon, stars, and earth, and sea, spirits of just men and prophets, souls of martyrs and apostles, angels, archangels, the many-eyed cherubim, and the six-winged seraphim, crying with unceasing praises the victorious hymn of your majestic glory. Holy, 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 O Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That sound familiar? That's the Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. So we're now into, into the midst of the Eucharistic prayer. Lord, you made man from the earth after your own image and likeness, gave him the joy of paradise, and you broke your commandment. You did not, And when he broke your commandment, you did not desert him, but disciplined him as a merciful father would, and called him by the law, instructed him by the prophets, and afterwards sent your only begotten son. By his coming he might renew and restore your image. On the night he was betrayed, when he was about to endure his willing and life-giving death on the cross, the sinless one for sinners, he delivered himself up for the life and salvation of the world. Taking bread in his holy and pure hands, he lifted his eyes to heaven, gave thanks and prayed. He broke the bread and gave it to us, his disciples and apostles, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you and given for the remission of sins. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup mixed with wine and water and lifting his eyes to heaven and presenting it to you, his God and Father, he gave thanks and prayed and blessed it. He filled it with the Holy Spirit and gave it to us, his disciples, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you and many, and given for the remission of sins. Amen. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and confess his resurrection until he comes again. We believe and confess. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and confess your resurrection. Again, does this sound familiar? And then there would be communion, and then there would be some closing prayers. I've got, I want to tile this up and just put a little bow on what we've talked about. Any other reactions to that? Is that surprising that you, you're reading that and it's, oh, I know how the rest of this goes? It's so similar to what we have now. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the Byzantine version. Exactly. It's, it's, the, the, there's, there's, that, there's like a, a lineage of liturgies. So this is the, the liturgy of St. James. You have St. James and St. Basil and St. John. They're all related, but based on the same common text um, in the same way that the modern Mass was based on the Latin. It's just like another another evolution. Anything else on this album? Just wrap up and put a bow on it. Okay. So back in 2009, that was when I first started digging into church history. That was when I start, first started reading the early church fathers, some of the ones that we looked at tonight. It's when I fell in love with Ignatius of Antioch. And it was also the same year that I visited Rome on pilgrimage, and I went to the San Callisto catacombs on the edge of Rome. And i got to say, I was very disappointed by it. 
it was all a little bit too well lit, clean, safe. They'd got rid of all of the bodies. There wasn't a skeleton in sight. So I was rather disappointed. Uh, maybe I'm particularly macabre, or maybe it's just a boy thing. I had, I'd, I'd, I'd wanted something a little bit different, but I was kind of disappointed. That was at least until after our tour, and our group was then ushered into another part of the catacombs where the other tourists weren't. And we were ushered into this small little chamber. It had a stone table and a small oil lamp on it. And the chamber was quite small, so we all got very cosy together. And then we waited in hushed silence. And after a couple of minutes, the priest that was with us on our pilgrimage, he came in fully vested and he started celebrating the liturgy. And there in the catacombs of Rome, by the light of an oil lamp, it was really, really easy to imagine that we were those early Christians. Imagine that we were perhaps that, that church in Rome in the second, third century. Maybe we were celebrating the anniversary of the martyrdom of one of our luminaries, Justin the Martyr. It was really, really easy. You could just squint slightly and imagine everyone in togas. But what I'm kind of hoping that going through this tonight has shown you that you don't need to go to Rome. You don't need to go to the catacombs, although they're both wonderful things. You should definitely do it if you can. But you don't need to do those things in order to be connected to the ancient, nascent church. If you want to be connected to the church that Jesus founded, if you want to be connected to the church of the apostles and the early Christian martyrs, witnesses all you need to do is just attend mass at your local parish wherever you are in the world and so i hope you've enjoyed this very quick tour through church history honestly i could have we could have spent the entire time on just one person uh, just like ignatius or justin but as i said at the beginning i didn't want this to be just a history lesson where you just learn a few more facts i, I really hope this benefits your spiritual lives um, I hope that when you go to Mass, you'll have an increased sensitivity to the liturgy. You know, what's happening? And thinking about why it's happening and wondering for how many centuries, how many millennia have Christians been doing this exact same thing? And appreciating our forefathers in faith, those who passed the faith down to us and who helped shape the liturgy that we're celebrating today. And ultimately, I hope that this helps you grow in love of Christ and his church and the celebration of the liturgy, which brings us the Eucharist, which the church has been doing for 2,000 years, which has been the source and the summit of the Christian life. Good stuff. Any other questions before it just descends into chaos? I don't think there's gonna be chaos. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no? All right, cool.